Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Scripturally, we begin our Lenten observance this morning by hearing an amazing gospel instance of God's love. And its implications are both thrilling and not a little unnerving. St. Luke tells us that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan after his baptism and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days and 40 nights he was tempted by the devil. St. Mark's version of the incident, an earlier account perhaps by 20 years, puts it in a much stronger voice. Mark says, After his baptism in the River Jordan, the Spirit of God immediately drove Jesus into the wilderness. He was there for 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. Oh, God so loved the world that he gave us his son, and God so loved his son that he drove him into the wilderness, and God so loves you and me. Think of the implications here. Well, what are the implications of keeping company with nothing less than the force itself? Of all the unexpected, imperious things for God to do, the Holy Spirit drives his son into a place of bewilderment, into a desolation, into an environment where he must wrestle with temptation and where he is called upon to let go and to detach. What a curious, if not callous, yet salvific thing for the advocate, the paraclete, the comforter to do with God's Son, God's beloved. The word drive here, as in driving Jesus into that land of bewilderment, is the same word we run across quite frequently in Scripture when Jesus is driving out demons. When Jesus expels the demons that enthrall a man or a woman, that attach to a man or a woman, that hold them tight, it is never what we might call a pretty sight. The word drive is as strong as vinegar. When Jesus confronts demons and calls them by name, not a one of them ever takes the negotiation sitting down. They react, and they do so with spitting fury. Demons want to hold on. They do not want to let go. What an awesome verb for the gospel writer to employ as he speaks of God's abundant love for his son. Now, there is a nuance of real conflict here, if not downright tempestuousness. It might behoove us to ponder seriously what this God of ours has in mind for those of us who worship him and who follow in his son's steps. Are we real sure we want to keep company with this one who drives out attachments so strong that we call them demons? Perhaps there's another one out there in the stratosphere who would provide us an easier and softer way when it comes to kingdom travel. 
Could it be, though, that God cares for his only begotten to such height and to such depth of love, tough love, Lenten love, that he does just precisely what is best for Jesus, what is appropriate and tailor-made for Jesus in his particular vocation as son? In this case, sending him straightway into the desert where he'd be tempted, where he'd be required to duke it out with the evil spirits of the enemy, or else be overcome by them. Could it be that God so loves you and me as members of his body that he might just herd one of us into such a place if that be best for us, and if that be best for the spread of the kingdom, and if our own particular vocation requires it for completion, for fulfillment? I happen to have met this particular temperament of the Almighty. I happen to have run into this spiritual aspect of the Godhead that will stop at nothing when it comes to herding a lost sheep who has erred and strayed like a wayward son. On Friday of this week just past, March the 8th, I celebrated 32 years of uninterrupted sobriety, all because a loving and at times bossy and bullheaded God insisted that I stop walking the primrose path that leads to perdition, all because a jealous and solicitous advocate and friend insisted in no uncertain terms that I get back on track and stop lollygagging in places that are desolate, in tracks that are drained, on steep and slippery slopes that go by the name of alcoholism, addiction, attachment, idolatry. For the past several months, I've been celebrating Holy Communion on Wednesdays for a rather sizable group of noonday worshipers at Trinity Church in Pine Bluff. Tradition there on Wednesday at noon is right one Holy Eucharist using every imaginable long option that the prayer book allows and including the Decalogue every single week, the Ten Commandments. As I was reading the words a few weeks, a few months ago at that noon Eucharist, I was struck one more time by the first of the commandments. It says very clearly, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And I thought to myself, and yet, like Israel, we are whoremongers when it comes to giving worth to that which is not God. We do it all the time. And with such casual abandon, we don't even notice it. While we don't have golden calves to dazzle us and rest our attention, we do give worth, we do assign value, we do make ultimately important a whole host of people, places, things, and situations that spell relief. And if that relief be strong enough, attractive enough, compelling enough, there goes our allegiance to the Almighty. Remember the ad that sported the phrase, how do you spell relief? I quoted that to you one time, and you all said, R-O-L-A-I-D-S, Rolates. I used alcohol to get 
to change my reality and to get that relief, to alter my mood and to adjust my attitude. And it worked, no doubt, much better than Rolaids would ever do. At one point in my life, I thought it was a magic elixir that would do for me what I could never, ever do for myself. Now, for the 15 to 20 percent of us who suffer from this pitiful and incomprehensibly demoralizing dis-ease, alcohol becomes the great deceiver. It has a way of mimicking the Holy Spirit. Do you realize that the word for alcohol in Latin is spiritus? And do you know that the word for spirit, as in Holy Spirit, is spiritus? The two are almost the same. Alcohol promised that there was an easier, softer, and quicker way to the kingdom of heaven than that of taking up Jesus, taking up Jesus' cross, and following him heaven only knows where. And now, with this bedevilment of an upheaval known as the opioid crisis, that percentage of sufferers is soaring like never before. 20% of the population, or is it now 30, perhaps 35%? At a critical juncture in my own life, three-plus decades ago, I think I came within a cat's whisker of transferring allegiance from the Holy Spirit to the distilled spirit. I think I got them confused. And it became for me a case of Katie bar the door, a phrase used in northwestern Arkansas. That's not a healthy and wholesome way to practice the spiritual life. For some reason or other, and scientists certainly aren't sure, my genes, my inner dispositions, my family, my proclivities, my environment, a combination of all of the above, for some reason or other, for me, alcohol paid great benefits. It took off the rough edges of life. It allowed me to relax. It provided me with a dose of courage, albeit Dutch. It gave me serenity. It gave me peace. It made it possible for me to connect. It gave me the feeling that I belonged. It relieved my fears. It anesthetized my anxieties. It stopped the squirrel caging that tossed me about with many a doubt. It absolved my guilt, and it allowed me at least for a few moments here and there to forgive and to forget. You see how similar it is to the way the Spirit works. Of course, that surcease did not last. It turned on me. Idols always turn on their victims. The very thing that I thought was solution turned out to be my agent of dissolution. Think about those words. Think how an idol works. The thing I thought was solution turned out to be the agent of dissolution. And I hit a bottom that was downright thunderous. Well, it's not just alcohol, for God's sake, that holds out a tempting solution for all that ails us. Anything that promises to take the pain of life away and to change the way we feel has the potential for attachment, as the psychologists might call it, or addiction, as medicine deems it, or idolatry, as theologians know it. 
Methodist theologian James Nelson has written what I consider a stockdologer in the theology of addictive illness. His book is called Thirst, God and the Alcoholic Experience. Nelson has been teaching academic theology at St. Paul's School of Theology in Kansas City since the time of Moses. And he is a recognized scholar in the field of Christian ethics. He's also now a recovering alcoholic, a faithful attendee at 12-step meetings, a living proof that this disease is a respecter of no man, no woman. It can sink its sharp claws into any one of us without advance warning and without regard to shape, size, color, career, nationality, religion, sex, sexual orientation, or political persuasion. Nelson speaks eloquently of his own bout with alcoholic idolatry, and his words are instructive, especially for those who wonder why we're still preaching about idols. We don't have any golden calves walking our streets anymore, or do we? James Nelson says, as an active alcoholic, I did not label my situation idolatrous. But my failure to do so did not change the reality. Here I was, an ordained minister, a fine family man, a seminary professor, sincere, I was convinced, in my Christian faith, but sliding slowly, imperceptibly into a powerful idolatry. As the slide gathered momentum, my new God insisted on more and more allegiance. Always in the back of my mind, there was a certain presence. It was a presence to anticipate, around which to plan one's day, a presence that guaranteed one would truly come alive when drinking time arrived, for that became sacramental. And let this discipleship take second place to none other. For alcohol is a jealous God whose first commandment is exactly the same as the one in the original Decalogue. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. I have no doubt whatsoever that my time of active alcoholism, says Nelson, involved the deepest experience of sin that I've ever had. I'm not saying that I was a moral failure or a bad person. I mean that I was immersed in spiritual bondage sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, as the gospel hymn puts it. For sin, remember, is not fundamentally an act. It is a condition. It is not essentially something we do. It is a state of being. It is the situation of being cut off, disconnected, in a real sense, homeless, untethered. The alcohol that originally had promised a bit more of life's goodness had become life itself for me. I was learning that false gods, idols, not only disappoint, they also destroy. I hope you all know, and I think this congregation does for sure, that we can all celebrate the fact that this Episcopal Church of ours has been the leader in recovery efforts from the very start, from the early 1930s until the moment today. From Calvary Church, New York City, where 12-step recovery was born, to the parish halls of almost every single one of our congregations, where AA and Al-Anon and SA and DA and GA and OA and a host of others meet every single day of the week and celebrate the gift of sobriety. 
These are unsuspecting places where miracles occur. Addicts find relief. Wretches are saved and God is glorified. And we always start in a very simple way, just like we do here, by offering a safe, open, warm, and hospitable pew to people like me who know that we would not make it another day without the grace of Jesus, the love of God, and the fellowship of the imperious spirit who loves us so much that at times he takes us by the scruff of our necks and shakes us until our teeth rattle. So may the Lord who has given us the will to minister to all who through addiction have lost their health and freedom now give us the grace and power to continue bringing in these particular sheaves. Let me end with a prayer in our prayer book. It came to us in 1976. It was the first time that any Christian denomination began to pray publicly for those suffering with addiction with as pervasive and as destructive as this disease is. That seems pretty late in history to begin praying. Let's end with that. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Oh, blessed Lord, you ministered to all who came to you. Look with compassion upon all who through addiction have lost their health and freedom. Restore to them the assurance of your unfailing mercy. Remove from them the fears that beset them. Strengthen them in the work of their recovery. And to those who care for them, give patient understanding and persevering love. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.